you have your Bibles, if you would, uh, open up to the book of Psalms, please. We're going to delve into Psalm chapter 1 today. going to do a little study in there. So while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Uh, back when I was in high school, I had a chance to go with some people from my church and some family members to a, uh, on a backpacking excursion up in the uh, Mount Rogers Wilderness Area in southwestern Virginia. There's a state park up there. Uh, we hiked uh, each day. We had some camping in the Roughing It in the Woods, uh, and then took some time to go whitewater rafting. It was a good time. So each day, uh, we, we, we took a larger group and split it up into smaller groups. The, uh, one of the trail guides would head off first down the trail that we were going to be hiking that day, and then about 20, 30 minutes later, another group would go, and then we would just all trickle out until everybody would leave, and then it would be followed by the final trail guide in case somebody got lost, and he could, uh, he could fix it and uh, get you back in the right way. So one day, uh, it was slated for our group to be the last group to leave, and I was the one who drew the short straw and had to be the group's navigator, which means I had to be the one who interpreted the map. So I sat down with the trail guide, and he showed us where we, where we were, where we're going, and how to get there. And so, you got that? Sure, let's go. And uh, how hard could it be, right? So we start tra- uh, trucking down the trail. We're making some good time, and then all of a sudden, we come to a crossroads, uh, we could go le- left, we could go right, uh, and we didn't know which way to go. So uh, normally when you're hiking on a trail, there are colored blazes uh, that they paint on the trees so you know which trail to go down. And as I look down this way and as I look down that way, it had the color blaze on both trails. And I'm scratching my head, I'm like, well, this wasn't in the Boy Scout manual. <laughs> So uh, I look in our map to say, okay, maybe the map will show us which way to go. And for some reason, the map did not have that crossroad. At least I couldn't find it. And so I did like any smart kid would do, and I got out my compass. And all it did was point north. That's north. Okay, that doesn't help me. I know where north is. All right, but where is this crossroad on my map? And so I tried to figure out which way to go. So staring here, I knew that one way was the right way, and the other was not. One was going to get me to the campsite at the end of the day, and the other was not. And so, I said to the group members, what do y'all want to do? And they said, and they said, you're the navigator. You pick. <laughs> and so I took the advice of the wise sage, the Major League Baseball player, Yogi Berra, who said, when you find yourself at a crossroad, you take it. So I, so I turned left. So I took the left route. And we traveled not very long down the path, and we realized that well, we started seeing signs that this probably wasn't the right path to have gone down. Because as we walked, we found ourselves walking over top of downed trees and between crashed limbs and wading through pools of water. The ground was so saturated. And, and we were thinking, should we turn back? Should we turn back? But guess what? We kept on blazing trails down that path. Uh, fortunately for us that the path dumped us out onto a cleaner, opener path, and we still didn't know where we were, but one of the trail guides was there. Well, hey, thank goodness, a guidepost. Where do we go? He's like, that way. Where'd y'all just come from? And so we kept on trucking. As it ends out, the state park had uh, decided to close a section of the trail and to establish a new trail that took a loop further south, uh, about two miles south, and we just took 
cut off like two miles of our hike that day. So our crossroad ended up being a shortcut. Uh, But it was not good for us in the long run because we were tired and wet and grumpy. And we get to the end of the trail and the second trail guide didn't know that we had taken that shortcut. And so he was very angry at us because he thought we were lost. And so he goes hunting for us and hikes an extra like 10 miles that day looking for us. And then in the end, he realizes y'all are the first ones to camp. Like, that's horrible. How dare y'all? So he made us do all the, the grunt work at camp that night. We had to go fetch water for everybody and do the cooking and cleaning. And anyway, the consequences of that crossroads was not good for us. So anyway, uh, the reason I bring that up is, is because when we live our lives, we find that there are crossroads that we run into. As you look down the path, you don't necessarily know what the end destination is going to be. You don't necessarily know what the path is going to be like as you walk. So in life, we have scripture here. and Psalm 1 is, is like that trail guide standing at that crossroads with us. He is telling us what the path for the person is going to be like, what the end destination is going to be like. And what the psalmist is saying is, is that one path is the path of the righteous man. The other path is the path of the wicked. And he encourages, he implores us to walk the path of the righteous man and to shun the path of the wicked man. And so let's take a moment, let's read through the Psalms, and let's delve into what God has for us today. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father, we are thank you. We thank you for your word that teaches us who you are, who we're to be in response to who you are. Pray in this time that we have together that your name will be magnified, that our hearts will be drawn in, in affection for you. We will love you with all of our being. Those of us that struggle with unbelief. Those of us who have not believed in you. That you will stir in our hearts, Lord. Convince us of our need for your righteousness. And help us to place our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. You will do a great redeeming work in us. And Father, as we walk. As we walk after you. And chase after you. You will be with us. You will carry us, Father, by your hand of grace and mercy. Thank you for our time together today. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So there's three things I want to point out from today's psalm. <clears throat> First, what we're going to see is, is the path of the righteous is marked by them saying no to sin. That's first. Second, what we're going to see is the, the path of the righteous is not just marked by saying no to something, but also by saying yes and yes specifically to God's word. And third, what we're going to see is is the path of the righteous is preserved 
by the Lord himself, by his sovereign sustaining hand. So let's see uh, what we have first. So first, the path of the righteous man is marked by him saying no to sin. And we get that from verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. So you, you see here that the righteous man is saying no to the lifestyle that these three individuals seem to be absorbed in. The three individuals he describes um, are the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And so for us to understand the path we are to walk, then help us, then the text is going to help us understand who these three individuals are. And so the three individuals are not the same person. They are three people who are at different paths, or excuse me, are at, are at different places in that path of wickedness. And so the first person is the wicked individual. So this is a, a term that's more of a judicial term, a law term, that describes a person who has committed acts um, of, of wrongdoing. There is a desire within that they have given themselves into and they have sinned against the Lord as a result. These acts um, are, are isolated, um, but sinful nonetheless. And so this is the person that has only, in essence, kind of waded down the path that uh, the Lord is saying to say, no, to say no to. The second one, the second person, the sinner, kind of ups the ante a little bit. Not only have they committed these isolated acts, but their repetition has begun to increase significantly. So the sinner here is the person who is the repeat offender. They're the person who has, ooh, tasted sin and learned, I like it. I'm going to do it again. It's like going to Thanksgiving dinner and realizing there's chocolate cake. I like chocolate cake. And so all your mind is now bent on chocolate cake. How can I get more chocolate cake in my life? And you begin looking for chocolate cake. Then third, you have this third individual who the text says is the scoffer. He's the mocker. And yet we see that he becomes even worse. He's more established in his rootedness. And he, he has, his heart has become hardened to the ways of the Lord. And using my silly example, it's like this person is saying, I love chocolate cake. And y'all vanilla cake lovers, I hate you. You should stay away from vanilla cake because chocolate cake's the only thing. That's the, that's the idea there. So what we see is, is this person who scoffer hates the Lord, hates his ways, and is opposed to those who are seeking him and are pursuing after righteousness in the Lord. And so we see that these three individuals are at different places in their journey down this path. And we see that as you walk further and further and further, the gravity of their sinfulness grows. The intensity of it the intensity of the hardness of their heart becomes worse. And so what we need to realize is, is an individual doesn't just wake up one morning and realize that they're a scoffer, that they hate the Lord and they hate His ways, and that they're opposed to those who are seeking after Him. This isn't something that just happens. It is a progression. It happens over time. And so this progression, he also marks in these other terms that we see here, the person begins to stand and then he, excuse me, he walks, and then he stands, and then he sits. And so you see that this closeness, this familiarity with temptation and with sin begins to grow and grow. And that's how the progression deeper into wickedness begins. We're far too 
casual with the sin and temptation that comes into our lives. Um, uh, an example to help us to see that is I, I've been reading on my way back and forth from work or listening to um, the two towers, or excuse me, not two towers, the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien writes this story and he uses the ring as as an example for temptation. So you see, uh, there's Frodo who inherits this ring on his 33rd birthday um, from his uncle Bilbo. And Gandalf doesn't know what the ring is. He just knows it's a magic ring, but he suspects that it's far worse than what anybody imagines. And so he says to Frodo, take this ring, put it in this envelope, uh, and put it away. And whatever you do, do not put the ring on. Okay, well, well, it's Uncle Bilbo's ring. What's the big deal? So he, you're a wizard. You know better than me. And so, so, he, so he does it. So he puts the ring away. But then the thoughts creep into his mind. Like, oh, the ring is, it could, it could get lost. Somebody could steal it. Like, I need to protect this ring. And so he goes against Gandalf's advice. And he takes the ring and puts it in his pocket to keep it safe. That, that's okay, right? I'm, I'm just... I'm not going to put it on. I'm not going to put it on. I'm just going to keep it in my pocket to keep it safe. But then the temptation begins to grow within him. He realizes that his pocket could form holes and it could slip out and he'll lose the ring forever. And so he takes the ring and what does he do? But he puts it on a chain and binds it to himself around his neck so that it could not get away. And so we see that his temptation begins to grow. And so everything goes smoothly for about 16 years. He wears that ring bound to his neck, not realizing the weight that he's carrying. And the temptation is growing. His desire and his heart, his lust for it begins to grow and increases. 16 years later, Gandalf shows back up and says, this ring is the ring of power. It is completely evil. We've got to destroy this. And so Frodo begins his journey to go to Mount Doom to destroy it. But on his journey... He begins to interact with these evil creatures, the black riders, the ring race. Whenever he's in their presence, something just happens to him. Like there is this overwhelming desire. I have to put this ring on. He doesn't understand where it comes from. But anytime he's in the presence of these evil people, it's like, I've got to put it on. And so in his mind, he's having this internal struggle. I've got to put this ring on. But no, I shouldn't put it on because if I do, the dark agents of the dark Lord are going to be drawn to me. I'll be destroyed if I do. But I just want to put it on. No, I shouldn't. I want to. I shouldn't. And this goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. All the while, while he's having this internal mental battle. Should I do this thing? Should I not? Should I do this thing? Should I not? With his hand, he's slowly reaching his hand into his shirt grabbing the ring, fiddling with it. My precious. (laughs) That is in essence how we treat temptation. Rather than mastering the temptation in our lives and putting it to death, we think we can get away by putting it in our pockets. But it doesn't stay in our pockets. It finally winds itself up on a chain around our neck. And then we fiddle with it. The next thing we know, we put it on. That's the exact same thing that Frodo did. That's what we do. So how in the world do we overcome this temptation, this internal struggle that we have? We want to sin. We don't want to sin, but we want to do what's right. But there's this urge, this longing, this desire that says, act on these desires, act on these desires. Paul deals with this idea in the book of Romans. I'm going to segue there for a moment. Um, 
the end of Romans 7 leading into chapter 8. He's dealing with some things there. I'll read uh, beginning in verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And so now, no matter, excuse me, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What Paul is saying to us here is that inside we are tempted. And that temptation we all have understood. I want to sin, but I shouldn't. I want to sin, but I shouldn't. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I just can't find the strength and energy to do. And Paul exclaims, I'm a wretched man. What do I do? Who's going to save me from this? And he answers it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on and fleshes this idea out in chapter 8, that God has put to death the flesh within us because He has given us His Spirit. And His Spirit, apart from His Spirit, we have no hope of saying no to the sin within us. We will give in to those temptations. We will give in to the longings that well up within us if it were not God's sovereign hand, His, His Spirit that lives in us. So those who are walking down this path of wickedness. They do not have God's Spirit. They are not sustained by God's Spirit. They therefore will give in and continually, progressively become worse and worse and worse and become like that scoffer. Those who have God's Spirit, God's going to sustain them. And because of that, because of God's Spirit in your life, He gives us the strength to say no because He's put it to death when Christ died on the cross. That's our first point. God gives us the strength through the power of His Spirit to say no to the sin and the temptation that wells up within us. But second, He's going to say that the life, the walking down this righteous path is not just by saying no to things, but it's also by saying yes to things. Specifically, the righteous man is to say yes to God's Word. Verse 2, But his delight is the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It brings up the idea of the law. Being in the Old Testament, we think of the, the Torah, the Old Testament, first five books, uh, which is what the, the Jews used in their synagogue teaching and their temple worship. Uh, 
But this is a wisdom text, and so the Torah is not the only thing that we should be thinking here. It's more, he's using this in a more generic way to think of the commands of God, the things God has told us, what he has revealed of himself. These are the things that we are to delight in. So if you think of the revelation of God, we, it makes my mind jump to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We see there that in the very first couple of verses, um, the writer is saying that in many ways, ages ago, the Lord revealed himself to the fathers through the prophets. So if you consider that, the Lord showed himself. He chose to speak to people to tell them who he is. If it were not for God revealing himself, we would have no way to find out who he is. He's too high. His ways are different from ours. Our hearts do not seek him naturally. And so he has to reveal himself. He has to show us who he is. And so he revealed himself to the prophets. And the prophets preached what God told them. And they wrote it down. God also inspired the minds. Gave them discernment of certain men who had the ability to see the history of, how, of Israel to see how God was working in their midst and how he was revealing himself as he interacted with Israel as a nation. And those prophets wrote that down. And then God also inspired praise songs and words of wisdom in the hearts of men, prophets, and kings. And they wrote that down. But Hebrews 1, 1 and 1, 2 go on, it says, But in these last days, the last days or the days that we're in as well. In these last days, He has given us His Son. He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus lived and walked on the earth. He spoke and taught. And the person of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, have been recorded for us in the writings of the New Testament. God has revealed Himself to us through all of Scripture. It has been recorded. It is God's Final word to us. It is his definitive word. It is authoritative in our lives. There's no other word that's going to come. There's no word that's going to come that's going to edit what we have. No one's going to add to it. This is what we have. And it speaks to us. And this is the word that God says we are to delight in. We are to find our deepest joy and satisfaction in coming to his word. And so, a little side note. We will not find our delight, our joy and satisfaction in coming to God's Word unless we come to God's Word as its subordinate. If we come to God's Word thinking that we know better, that our ways are the ways that are right, and we sit over God's Word as its judge, as its critic, as a skeptic, then we will not find joy in God's Word. God's Word is teaching us who He is and who we are to be in light of Him. How we are to follow Him, it's not always easy to sit under God's Word. Because sometimes it tells us that we're wrong. Sometimes it tells us that we need to change. But unless we are subordinate to God's Word, we will not find joy and delight in it. Now, to help us to delight in God's Word, the psalmist goes on and he says, and in his law he meditates day and night. Meditation is going to it does something for us. So the idea of meditation is that we're not like the Eastern mystics think of clearing our minds and thinking no thoughts and because of that we'll come to 
a state of bliss. No, the meditation here is, is yes, we're ridding our thoughts of, our, our minds of our own thoughts and distractions, but we're filling our minds with God's thoughts. So in the process of filling our minds with God's thoughts, the, the image of meditation is that you're contemplative, you're thinking, you're, you're reading or saying the words of Scripture over and over again, trying to think it, trying to let it trickle from your mind down into your heart, trying to understand it, trying to believe. And so two things meditation will do for us. One, it is where practice meets belief. So as we meditate on God's Word, we are learning to put into practice the things that we are reading here. But not only that, it connects the head with the heart. Because as we know things, we meditate on them, think on them over and over and over again, we begin to believe. And if we believe, we will do. And that's what he's saying here. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And so we find our deepest joy in seeking God through his word. Third, we're going to see that the way of the righteous man is preserved by the Lord. And so the next couple of verses are going to show that using some images. So the first image is that of a tree, and the other is that of chaff. And so he says, the righteous man will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The idea of being planted here is like the tree is not growing wild, willy-nilly in the middle of nowhere. It has been, a specific place has been selected so that it will, the seed will grow and thrive. And it's beside a river of life-giving, continual water. And this water fuels this seed's growth so that it can produce fruit. It doesn't say continual fruit, it just says fruit in the right time. When the time is right, this fruit will come. But what it does say is the Leaves don't change. They're always green. Even when there's a drought, yes, the leaves are green. Why? Because it's soaking in that life-giving water from the stream. Even when dry winds and hard weather come, yes, that tree is going to be planted by this life-giving water that sustains it. So Jesus plays on this same idea in the book of John. There in John 4, Jesus has an interaction with the woman at the well. And he says to her, if you drink of the water that, that I give you, he says, you'll never thirst again. In fact, the water that I offer you will spring up within you like a, and, and well up within you, leading to eternal life. So even here, here there's an image of there's something that sustains us. And then he gets back at that same idea, but using a different analogy in John chapter 15. Uh, he says that I am the vine, you are the branches. If I abide in you and you abide in me, you bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea is, is that there is a connection, there is a source of life that we must tap into. He's saying that the wicked do not have this source of of life tapping to tap into. So what is this source of life for the believer? It's God's Spirit. 
When a person recognizes their fallenness before God, that they have sinned against the Almighty God, they deserve to be punished because of their sins. They repent of those sins and they say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. There's nothing I can do to earn a right standing before you. I can't undo the wrong things I've done. There's no atonement that I can do. All I can do is fall down and say, forgive me, because Christ took the punishment I deserve for my sins. He took the punishment I deserve. He's the one that is judged rather than me. Those who place their faith in Jesus, He forgives them of their sins. And when He forgives them of their sins, He pours into them His Spirit. And His Spirit lives inside of you. And it is this water that is being referred to, that the tree is tapped into. It is the water that Jesus says to the woman of the well, you should drink this water. It is the same thing. Those who are grafted into the vine of Jesus have this life-giving sap that gives them fuel for life. And it sustains them no matter what happens. You can find happiness in life because Jesus has sustained you even when there is struggle, even when there is disease, even when death is knocking at the door. There can be something that sustains you. And it ain't going to come from within. It comes from Christ alone. And what he says is, is the wicked don't have it. And so he gives them a different image. He compares them to chaff. It's an agrarian idea that when a kernel of grain grows on a stalk, it's encompassed by a little like a little sack kind of thing. So to get to the valuable thing, the substantive thing, the grain, you've got to get rid of the chaff. And so they would toss the grain up into the air. The substantive grain has weight and falls back down, but the chaff is blown away in the breeze. Because it's useless, purposeless, it has no value at all. And so it's going to be blown away like it's nothing. That's the way it is with the wicked. They don't have anything to sustain them. When life hits, there's nothing to ground them. There's no life-sustaining water. So if you're not a believer today, I appeal to you. Lean on the Lord because He is the one who will satisfy you. He goes on to say, those who are wicked will be judged because of their sin. Not only are they opposed to the Lord because of that rebellion to God, there's judgment to come. The last thing he says here in verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This idea of knowledge, this knowing is an intimate knowledge. Uh, he uses, the person writing Exodus uses the same word to describe uh, how God saw the plight of his people in Egypt. So in Egypt, they were slaves. The Hebrew people were slaves. They were uh, tortured. They were under heavy burden. And the people cried out to God, God, are we not your people? Are we not your children? Look at what's happening. There are other people who are lording their authority over us. Help us. And the text said, says, and the Lord knew them. The idea there in Exodus is that the Lord is watching over them. And then the rest of the Exodus is showing how God knew them, how He watched over them. Through mighty signs and through wonders and through miracles, God delivered them from their slavery and drew them to Himself. That is the image that He wants us to have here of the Lord watching over the way of the righteous. He knows your plight. He knows your struggle and He is constantly drawing you to Himself. He is watching over you and He cares and loves for you. 
He does not have that kind of relationship with the wicked. He says, the way of the wicked will perish. There is judgment to come and consequences for that judgment for those who do not follow after the Lord, for those whose hearts are not bent towards Him, who do not love Him. And that judgment is eternal damnation in hell. And so the psalmist here is pleading with those who are reading this. Don't choose that path. Don't live a life isolated from the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Seek after Him and walk the path of righteousness. So as we come to the end of the psalm here, um, I hope you are reflecting within yourself and, and pondering some of these things for yourself. Do you find that you are, do you find connectedness with the righteous man or do you find more connectedness with the wicked man? I think all of us will see definitely patterns, maybe of both, but I know that my heart wants to walk in the righteous way. But sometimes I find my heart giving in to the wickedness and the wicked ways. And so we ask ourselves, who in the world could live this Life of the righteous man. I can't do it. You can't do it. So so who is it? Who is this righteous man that they're describing here? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is that righteous man. Jesus is the one who came to earth from heaven and lived a perfect life. He experienced temptation and struggle just like you and I do. But he did not sin, not even once. He interacted with the the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, and he was never influenced or swayed by the patterns of life that they lived according to. We also see that he found his delight in the law of the Lord. Frequently, he would get away to spend time with his father, and his, his walk with his father was done in such a way that when he went about his daily task. He always did his Father's will. He said no to himself and said yes to the Father's will. Every time. And then, like the tree here, in everything he did, he prospered. And what we see is that when Jesus came to earth, he came to redeem a people for himself. Because you and I were estranged from God because of our sin. And he paid the penalty you deserve for your sins when he died on the cross. To prove his power and authority in life, three days after he died, he rose again. And now he calls you and I to repentance and faith, to trust in him as our only means of salvation. And he waits to return, recreate this earth, and to live among the people who follow after him and to bring punishment to those who rejected him in life. So we stand at a crossroads every day. Which path am I going to choose? And if you're connected to Christ, He has drawn you from the wicked life that you would long for. And He has placed you on that righteous path with Him. And He is carrying you along the way. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Thank you, Father, that you are teaching us about the lives that we have before us, the choices that we 
have to make. Father, if you were not moving in our hearts and in our lives, we would choose to sin against you. And we would go deeper and deeper into sin. But Father, you have made a way for us to know you. You've punished your son. He died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we can know you. And Father, you're calling us to yourself. Help us to respond in faith, Lord. Father, you are made great because of what you did in Christ on the cross. Father, our only response is faith. To lean on you, to trust in you, to be made more like you. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is that righteous man. We thank you that you are making those of us who know you, who are your children, you are making us like yourself. Day by day, becoming more like you. We long to be in your presence, Father. Pray these things, Father, in your name. Amen.